Welcome to Silver Lining, the podcast where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. In this episode, Columbia PhD candidate in East Asian languages and cultures, Abigail McBain, explores the origins of Buddhism in Japan, how it was used as a tool in extending state authority, and what Buddhism looks like in the region today. The traditional story for how Buddhism came to Japan, according to the earliest of the major court histories, the Nihon Shoki, Japan, uh, Buddhism arrived in Japan in 552, and it was brought over from Korea, specifically a Korean kingdom called Pekche. And the context of Buddhism being brought over, it was a statue, there are also some texts and Buddhist practitioners, but really that the idea is the statue was coming over. And some people are saying, well, this is in the situation of Pekche being at war. And so they were asking Japan for military support, which Japan did provide. And then others are saying, oh, but this is a sign that Pekche was, a tributary state to Japan. And so there there are different arguments about what happened and what context it was in, but that is the framework for it, that it happened in 552. There's a temple record for the temple uh, Gangoji, which states that no, it happened in 538, but in much the same context. But in reality, Buddhism was definitely in Japan before this time. And the reason that I can say that so definitively is because there were Buddhists in Japan prior to this time. We know that there were Koreans and Chinese in Japan at this time. Part of that is because there was trade happening and there were people going back and forth. And there were Koreans in particular in Japan, in part because they did have good relationships with certain, well, mostly with Pekje. So we know that there were these people coming in. We know that there were craftsmen. We know that there were traders. And so, of course, they're bringing their religion with them as well. Whether that was circulating, whether that was at court is a separate issue. But at the very least, we can say that there was this formal presentation, or at least the history stating that there was this formal presentation in the mid-sixth century. With regards to what it looks like after that, um, in the eighth century, we really see this development of different schools of Buddhism around the capital city of Nara. So if you know, Japanese geography at all, if you know of Kyoto, Nara is very close to Kyoto, but Kyoto was a later capital. Nara was the capital for this time period, which is why it's also called the Nara period. So we have six major schools that developed in Japan at this time, or at least in in Nara at this time. And I'm interested in two of them. One of them is the Kegon school, and one of them is the Ritsu school. So the Kegon school is related to a particular text that the, the monks that I'm studying really promulgated. And then the Ritsu school is related to Vinaya, which really connects with monastic codes of conduct in this case. After the Nara period, we have more of an interest in esoteric Buddhism where we're not necessarily connected directly to the ceremonies and rituals and rites within the text, but of d- connecting more directly and being able to kind of transcend that. It's, it's more, it's very hard to explain. That's part of the reason it's called esoteric. But that's really what we see developing within Kyoto is this focus upon what's called Tendai and Shingon are the main esoteric Buddhist schools that really developed right after this period. There are additional schools that developed uh, mostly coming over from China. We see the flourishing of Zen. There's Pure Land Buddhism that develops as well. And then 
th those are kind of some of the main schools. There are later schools as well. Um, this Nichiren, which is more of this concept that if the whole country is not Buddhist and specifically embracing the Lotus Sutra, that the country is going to fall. So then we have this connection between the country's safety and specifically the Lotus Sutra, but also Buddhism. And that also connects with my time period as well, because in the eighth century, there was also this connection that Buddhism could save the country. Buddhism could help the country and more specifically could help the ruler. So that's, that's not a new idea, but we see that idea popping up a couple of different times. Uh, in terms of what Buddhism looks like today, a lot of it has to do with uh, funerary rites and customs. I'm, I'm skipping a lot of time periods here, but um, if you're going to go into a temple today, much of it is tourism or looking for amulets that can protect you in terms of sickness or uh, from getting into car accidents, or if you're looking for a job, or if you're hoping to get pregnant and have a safe birth, you can get all kinds of different amulets for that. But also uh, funerary rites. And um, if you have a child who died very young or was miscarried or aborted, that's another major thing that temples do these days is offer rights to try to appease those children. So that's, a, that's all yeah. over the place. Uh, is there anything else? Did I answer that question? Or? Maybe this is a good chance for us to switch gears a bit and talk more about your dissertation. And we know that part of your dissertation definitely revolves around Todaiji and Emperor Shomu. And from some of the readings you sent over, I saw that Emperor Shomu definitely oversaw the growth of Buddhism in Japan during the eighth century as well as the construction of the Buddhist temple of Todaiji, which included this statue of the great Buddha. However, there are some sources saying that Buddhism had only been introduced maybe less than 200 years before the construction of Todaiji. So I'm interested in why was Emperor Shomu so invested in the development of Buddhism in particular, and how did this perhaps help him extend his authority across the country and also the nearby region? I'm gonna start with the idea that Buddhism was only introduced about 200 years before, because that 200 years is actually very important. Like I said before, according to the court record, the Nihon Shoki, Buddhism was introduced in 552. Todaiji, the, the, the great Buddha, the Vairochana, uh, the, the Daibutsu, a great Buddha is what it's often just referred to as, the eye-opening for that, which is what enlivens the statue and makes it that Buddha, that happened in 752, which is exactly 200 years later. So it, it's not a coincidence it happened when it did. In fact, the statue wasn't quite complete and the temple was definitely not complete when that happened. So the timing was very purposeful in that case. As for why Shomu really leaned in hard with Buddhism, Buddhism had been in Japan for a while and there had been points where there were, were struggles about, is it going to be accepted, is it not? But by Shomu's time, there was no question that it was embraced. What Shomu did that was so amazing was he really looked a lot to what was happening in China and Korea, and a little bit to India as well. And you saw how other rulers were using Buddhism to support their rules. Shomu was not in a secure position. There was a deadly smallpox epidemic for two years from um, 735 to 737, decimated a large portion of the population. Earthquakes, natural disasters. And he himself later in life had, um, we don't know what, but some kind of severe illness. So 
it, just in terms of what's happening around him, he's not secure. He's not secured internally or externally. There were still fears that China or Korea might invade. Korea at this time had been taken over, well, not taken over, but had been annexed by one of the Korean kingdoms called Sheila. And Sheila had allied with Tang China in order to take over. And Japan had fought against the both and been, the, the Navy had been decimated. So they were very strong. And it's not great to have very strong neighbors. So there was that level of insecurity. And while Japan did not rely upon the mandate of heaven concept to the same degree that China did when it came to determining who the rulers would be, there was still the sense that if things are out of balance and chaotic, then the reason for that is because the ruler is doing something wrong. Shomu was also only a couple generations in from, uh, I think it was his great grandfather, not positive, I think it was his great grandfather who had been in a fight for the throne with his brother. This is a very famous dispute of which brother would end up taking the throne. And the throne had gone back and forth for a little while after that, but Shomu's line was not that secure. There were other people who could be on the throne. He had another insecurity in who he chose to be his empress. His empress was named Komyo, and she was from a very powerful family called the Fujiwaras, who were not well liked at court, in part because they were so powerful. But Shomu was also a Fujiwara because his mother was Komyo's half-sister. And he had actually grown up in this household. So he had a very close tie to his Fujiwara family. And so he'd made his half-aunt uh, his primary empress, which had never happened before that a person who was not an imperial princess being made empress. So that was controversial. They only had two children, a son and a daughter. The son had been made the crown prince. He died within a year of his birth. So that was another problem. And Shoma did have another son by another concert, but he didn't make him his heir. He chose their daughter as his heir another controversial aspect. So it's just layer upon layer of things that are just not jiving well with the court that Shomo keeps doing. And so there's just a lot of instability here. So where is he going to do? He looks to a religious system that in other cases has proved very useful in not just uh, Tang China, but also with um, Empress Wu Zetian in her extremely controversial rule. And also with the, the Sui dynasty, the um, King Ashoka in India in the third century BCE had also used Buddhism to try to, on the one hand, make up for certain, um, well, he killed a lot of people, let's just say, and he was a little concerned about how that might look in the afterlife and in his rebirths. But Sh um, Emperor Ashoka, uh, King Ashoka had also used this as an opportunity to expand his empire and he spread out these uh, Ashokan pillars, which were seen as wonderful examples of merit and his role as this, they call the wheel turning king, a Chakravartin, his role as a very great Buddhist king. And this theme of the Chakravartin, the great Buddhist theme also made it over to Shomu. And so a lot of his activities were also trying to be this great Buddhist king. We also see text circulating at this time saying, if you do such and such a thing, these Buddhist deities will come and protect you. So one very important text at this time was the Golden Light Sutra, or not, yes, the Golden Light Sutra. And so it was saying, for kings that properly do these ceremonies, 
all of these devas, all of these Buddhist gods will come and protect you. There was another text called the Humane, King, the Humane Kings text that was actually created in um, China or Central Asia outside of India. But that was like going even further saying, okay, you have to do these rituals and we will come and protect you. In fact, if there is an army that is coming to invade you, we will send them around and have them invade a country that's not doing these things. So it's a promise and a threat. You have to do these things and we'll protect you. But if you don't do these things, you could be the country that gets invaded. So there's a lot that Buddhism offered at this time. And it wasn't just Shomo doing it. He was seeing what was happening in China. He was seeing what was happening in Korea. And he was following certain prototypes that they had developed. So in his case, he developed one of his most famous actions beyond building the, the great Buddha at Todaiji was also developing a system of protective temples, state protection temples in all of the provinces. What's very interesting with this too is you have both male and female counterparts. You have both a convent and a monastery built very close to each other in every single province. And so on the one hand, you can see this as like being like part of a network that's all together, they all protect the country. But it also represents court presence within those very rural areas because you're sending out monks and nuns to these locations that are largely probably coming from the temple or from the, the capital itself. So now they're acting almost like embassies or flagpoles in a way saying, okay, just so you know, this is mine and that is mine too. So they're representing his interests very far from court while also acting with this sense of be his munificence of spreading Buddhism throughout his realm. So it's, it's doing two things there that really work very well for him. One of the things that fascinates me with, as I've been researching more about Todaiji, is realizing how very personal Todaiji was to Shomu. Because the origins of the temple are actually a very small hermitage that he had built when his son with Komyo died. And then later on, when he decided to appoint their daughter as his heir, he renamed it right about the same time. So there's this connection with the daughter, his son, and this temple. Shomu went on about a five-year self-imposed exile to escape controversies at court. And in the course of that five years, he actually started the Daibutsu project, the, the great Vairochana project, elsewhere. He also tried to move the capital four times in five years. It's very expensive. So he, he tried that, but he got lured back. He got asked to come back to Nara. So he came back, but he brought the Barochana project with him and had it set up in this very personal temple that he'd already had connected to his children. And he expanded that into the uh, Todaiji. So what this means is that this temple is not only his temple, not only his family temple, but the temple connected to himself and the children that he had with this one wife. What's also significant is the location. Todaiji is located between the Fujiwara family temple and the Fujiwara family shrine. So it's, it's their stronghold, it's, it's their area. And so by having this massive Buddha there, this very powerful, important Buddha right there, it's saying, he is directly connected to me, he is directly connected to my children, and he is directly connected to my maternal family. So we've got all of these different insecurities 
the uh, what's happening at court, what's happening in terms of natural disasters, his own health, the threat of potential invasion, the concern about his succession when he's appointed a daughter to be his heir, and that's not seen as a acceptable idea at the time. He's all of these different insecurities, and he's looking at Buddhism to try to address every single one of them. And a lot of that is headquartered at Todaiji, which is also the headquarters for the state protection temple system, the network that he set up throughout the whole country. So everything is coming together at this one temple. I mean, that's really fascinating. Thanks so much. There's clearly a lot of forces at work here. And I'm curious, you know, considering this backdrop of insecurities and geopolitical tensions, how was this investment in Buddhism received by the Japanese at the time? I mean, especially with a project such as Turaiji, which I imagine is very labor intensive, cost intensive, as well as the state protection temples. How did they react? And perhaps kind of as a follow up question, um, what was that interaction between Buddhism and other religions and native practices like, since I know that's um, an interest for you? Yeah, it's, I'm gonna just focus on the, how it was reacted to, especially the, the costs involved because the economics behind religion is really quite important. I don't think it gets enough attention, but that's such an important thing to look at in this case, because look at what he'd done. He had two new temples in every province built. Plus there was a, a pagoda for all of them. There were sutras being duplicated and sent out and papers expensive and the manpower to do this. Then he had four capitals in five years and those also involved building projects. He had this person of villa. Um, and then this is the second attempt at this giant bronze casting process, which nobody had done in the world. There had been cast bronze Buddhas, but not of this scale. So this was something truly unique that Japan was establishing, but they, didn't, they had to figure out how to do it first. So yeah, massive costs involved. And what we have to go by in terms of history is largely court records and temple records. And those aren't necessarily going to say if there were heavy reactions against this, but there, there are some indications of the costs involved and the fact that Shomu might've been straining a bit in terms of the national, uh, the, the treasury. So one of those things that we see is actually in the call for the great Buddha itself, where Shomu says, I'm going to create this amazing Buddha and it's going to be for everybody. And so let's all contribute to it. He basically makes a Kickstarter. This is a crowdsourced Buddha. And he says, if everybody contributes anything, even a blade of grass, that will help. And he's positing this as this is an opportunity for all of us to get in at the ground level. And we will all benefit from the, the good karma that comes from building this amazing statue. But that probably also related to the fact that this was going to be very, very expensive. There's also a, there's a very popular monk at the time named Gyoki, who did not get along with the court very well. There, there were, he was too powerful and too popular for them to really take down. But part of what made him so popular was that Gyoki didn't see the, the benefit to staying inside of a temple. But staying inside a temple means that your efforts can be directed towards 
using Buddhism in such a way that it will benefit the country. Gyoki wanted to go out. Gyoki was making roads and building bridges. Gyoki was proselytizing. He was uh, actually helping his masses self-ordain as monks and nuns, which is also a problem because if you're a monk or a nun, you're not paying taxes and you are exempt from corvée labor and you need those two things to have massive building projects. So what Shomu did was kind of ingenious where he deputized Gyoki. And so he sent Gyoki out to collect money for these construction projects. And in the end, the uh, Yoki actually at the end of all of this became the highest in the Ministry for Monastic Affairs. And I think it was 400 of his followers, their um, ordinations were legitimated. So it, it worked out well for all involved. But that was another way that he dealt with the uh, financial strain. There was a, a crisis when it came time to coat the Vairochana statue with gold to gild it because they ran out of gold. So they were in the process and they were just about to go to China to ask for gold or at least to buy gold when a gold deposit was found in the Northeastern section of a park called Mutsu. And this was a major, major deal. And it was actually not a Buddha but it was a local kami, a local God who was credited with the discovery of the gold. Uh, there's another really fascinating section that's a, a testimony from a leader of a failed coup against Emperor Shomu's daughter, who was reigning. She reigned twice. The first time was as Kōken, and the second time she reigned as Shōtoku. So I think it was when she was Kōken that there was a, uh, an attempted coup against her, and the ringleader said, well, part of the reason that we were disgruntled was because Shomu implemented taxes on the road. For, and the aristocrats didn't like that. And it was not a very good argument because he had been a child at the time and his own father had been part of like approving the taxes. But so we, we do get those little signs like, okay, there, there was some disgruntlement here. But at the same time, like they did happen. I don't know beyond that if there was a great sense of upset or happiness about this. The, it was an amazing achievement. The eye-opening ceremony itself was extraordinary and involved a lot of different music and theatrical troops from various parts of the, the local area. But I'm, I'm not sure if there was like deep, deep dissatisfaction because I'm not sure that we would see that recorded. Or if there is, I, I haven't found it yet, but I would love to see that. Um, for your second question mm -hmm. about how local deities were seen, um, there's not necessarily, this, uh, there, there's really no sense of mutual exclusivity with religion. So I view religions, especially at this time, as being like modes of music. So you can be a classically trained violinist, but what does that mean? Classical in what way? Classical to whom? So you have your own tradition that you have been trained in, but that doesn't mean that you can't appreciate jazz. And it doesn't mean you can't take your violin and try to play reggae. There, there's no restriction as to how you can use your appreciation and knowledge of music in other ways. Like there are certain things that are appropriate for certain settings. And it's the same with religion, especially in this context. So there are local kami 
Uh, one particular one that is very notable at this time was a kami named Hachiman. And he was not around the, the capital area. He was in a southern island called Kyushu. And there are wonderful stories which, with Hachiman in, involving, mostly involving actually Shomo's daughter when there was a, a succession crisis when supposedly Hachiman said, you know what? This monk who's been advising you, that monk should be emperor. And fascinating, fascinating story. But with regards to Shomu and the creation of the Vairochana, Hachiman supposedly communicated through his medium that he wanted to go directly to see the Vairochana. And so somehow he was taken to Nara and presented in front of the Daibutsu that was still in the process of being created. And Hachiman stated, um, this is wonderful. And I'm going to make sure that this is a success. I'm going to protect the Vairochana. And so a Hachiman shrine was built just outside of Todaiji in order for him to be there to protect him. And this is actually a theme that we see in a lot of different temples where there will be a Shinto shrine nearby. As a, it's called a tutelary shrine or a protector shrine. So that that kami is a protector for the, that particular temple. And actually a lot of Buddhist temple narratives are called Engi involve a story where a local deity says, yes, come, welcome, I will protect you. You are welcome here. So the, there's not really a sense of competitions. There, there could be competition, of course, but the competition is largely for resources. And the resources in this case is financial support. Who's getting money from aristocrats and the emperor and where is that going? So there could be competition in that case. And sometimes there were issues with hierarchy of how the kami related to the, to the Buddhas. But, uh, the Buddhist cosmology is very expansive and has a god realm. So it's very easy to explain local deities in that case. Later on, not at this time period, but later on they were, okay, well, how, does, how do these work? And do we want to see them as being subservient or within this cycle? And so there were later attempts to kind of um, position the kami in a more advantageous position. But in this particular case, for this time period, there, there wasn't competition and the kami had a place. And Shomo himself would do, would be part of ceremonies and rituals that would nowadays be considered Shinto and not Buddhist, because that's part of the music. That's part of doing what's appropriate for the setting and the ceremony. At least one of his daughters went off to be, um, uh, not a medium, but a shrine maiden at the Issei Imperial Shrine. So he, he did participate in these different traditions that are technically not related to Buddhism. We wanted to ask you a bit about how your research can help us understand the present moment. So how is Todaiji perceived by Japanese society today? So Todaiji today is largely seen as a tourism spot. There's a lot of pride in it. It's a very, very old temple. It's It's been rebuilt twice since its initial build. Um, the current uh, temple dates to 1709, so we don't have the original the Daibutsu himself has had to be recast because at one point his head fell off and there have been fires. 
so, but there, there's a lot of pride with Todaiji. There's a lot of awareness of how old it is. And actually just behind Todaiji is a storehouse called the Shosoin. And the Shosoin contains objects, not only from Todaiji, but also from Emperor Shomu. And these objects are not just Japanese, but they also came over through Silk Road trading routes, as well as from diplomats returning to Japan or coming to visit from other countries. So there's a lot of pride in this amazing collection. It's like 9,000 objects. It's huge. And there are annual displays of these items. There are instruments from all over Asia. There are elements of um, Central Asia and the Middle East there as well. There are medicines and raw materials. So a great deal of pride and a great deal of attachment and connection to the, the temple and how important it's been, not only for the time here that I study, but also throughout its history. It's been a major, major temple. And you've explained how Buddhism was used in the time of Shomu um, as a tool in state expansion and support. Do we see any instances of religion being used in, uh, as the same, in the same way for state control today? Today, I would say not so much. Um, Japan does hold a separation of church and state. Um, and as it is, Buddhism is not as influential as it used to be. That's not to say that we don't see elements where it has been influential in other times. Uh, for example, I remember reading, there, there was a tradition of copying sutras for, um, for merit and actually even copying in blood. And I remember reading about a World War II pilot who copied the sutra in blood in this very like old tradition in part for his own protection. But nowadays, it, I wouldn't say it has the same level of influence on the state, no. But at the same time, in order to understand the Japan of today, I think it is very important to understand the Japan of yesterday and the day before that and the day before that, especially in its relationship with Buddhism. But especially with kind of Western influences, how the Japanese government relates to Buddhism it has been, it, it's been a little rocky for several years in part from influences, especially from the United States about separation of church and state. So it's not happening on the state level, but you mentioned funerary rights, amulets and rights to appease children um, mm -hmm. are more important today. And it was interesting that you mentioned the, the smallpox pandemic of 1935 because obviously with the pandemic um, going on today, um, I was wondering whether Buddhism has played an important role in people's responses to that in the same way that it might have done in the eighth century. Oh, I love that. I, yes, Buddhism has always been important and not just Buddhism. We, we see a lot of different elements used to address pandemics because especially for an island nation, Japan has dealt with a lot of pandemics and they're especially vulnerable two pandemics. So the time period I was talking about had a smallpox pandemic of 735 through 737, but they happen regularly. A lot of different illnesses. Uh, tuberculosis was a big concern in more recent history. Um, but yes, there have been ceremonies for uh, COVID-19, for example. And actually right now in Japan, a really big symbol for trying to fight COVID, it's, it's not a Japan, it's not a Buddhist figure, but it's a little kind of called like a Japanese mermaid uh, called Amabie. And Amabie is, I guess it's it's got long flowing hair and a fish like a, a body like a fish and three legs and kind of a beak for her mouth. 
and this relates to an Edo period, I think like 18th century drawing that um, somebody said that they saw one of these and it got connected to fighting pestilence. And with COVID, suddenly amabies are everywhere. And I actually saw a small um, Buddhist uh, kind of altar that was amabie themed. So it had amabie carved on the outside and there were in, like implements inside that had amabie on it. So that's, it's still, there's this connection too, still with Buddhism, but also Shinto as well and trying to fight pestilence. And in some cases, it's just almost like a good luck charm in a way the sense of I have this and it makes me feel good. I, I feel positive upon seeing this. And you might see signs of wear your mask and it'll have an amabie on there too. Um, it's a really fascinating topic. It's been nice for us to like work our way backwards and see how that connects to the present day. Well, thank you all. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Silver Lining, a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory with Yanwa Chen, Ji Yun Moon and Jasleen Chago. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Abigail McBain, and thanks to you for tuning in.